Well, good morning to you. We left off our study last week uh, with David in probably one of his uh, worst times of life and coming to his senses and finding strength in the Lord. It is after those events that we read about last week of, of great difficulty of living in the Philist with the Philistines uh, and uh, the times of war that he went through that uh, as he comes now back to God that we see things get better in David's life. Uh, we read about at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul uh, has been killed in battle which now has set David up to finally be able to acquire the promises that God had given him uh, way on back when he was a shepherd boy in uh, Jesse's uh, uh, home and yard. And so now David has become king over Israel and over Judah as we come into 2 Samuel. Uh, and we have him conquering Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so things are going really well for, for David. And I think it's important to see that we, we, as we come out of 1 Samuel and move through 2 Samuel, uh, David is, is acquiring power and becoming now king over all of Israel. And as we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read that it's, it's time for a, a great parade. And we're going to have a festival. David has conquered Jerusalem. It's now called the City of David. If you remember the headquarters before, had been over with Shiloh and also in Hebron. And so everything is getting moved from those other cities to Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem will be the new headquarters uh, and capital over all of Israel. And so in doing so, it is time to move the Ark of the Covenant. And it is time to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And so that's one of the reasons for the great fanfare. Is, uh, it's time to worship God and we have a festival going on. And so let's get the Ark of the Covenant in here after we've been so victorious. After God's given us the victory and we've been able to drive back the Philistines. We've been able to establish Jerusalem. And so it's time to have our worship of praise to God. And, and that's really the attitude that we find ourselves is in the story of Second Samuel Chapter 6, notice in verse 1, we have David, he is, assembles the choice men of Israel. You get your best and your brightest out there, and you can imagine them in the procession. He gets the 30,000 uh, of those choice men, verse 2. He gets all of his troops, he gets the soldiers out. This is a, a show of military might and strength. Have them roll through the streets of Jerusalem. You can imagine them on horses. You can imagine them with swords as they go through the streets of Jerusalem. So this, this great parade for all of Israel is taking place. And in verse 2 we see it's time to get the Ark of the Covenant. We're getting the Ark of, of God and we're going to bring that through the streets as well. And so in verse 3 they get the Ark of God on a new cart and they transport it from Abinadab's house which was on a hill. Uh, Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, are guiding the cart and brought it and brought, brought it with the Ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill and Ohio walked walked in front of the ark. And so can you imagine it? At first the choice men of Israel, the, the leaders and the wise ones as they move through the streets. And then, then the soldiers marching through and the horses going through. And then the greatest scene of all as we have, here is the Ark of the Covenant as it rides on the card and the oxen is taking the, the ark through the city of Jerusalem. And notice the great fanfare that goes with it in verse 5. David and all the house of Israel are celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of these instruments here. And so uh, the music is playing and, and David and all of Israel are out there and they're excited and there's praises to God and, and the music is going on. And what a wonderful day it is as there's just it's just 
festival time in Jerusalem. It's bigger than the Rose Parade on New Year's Day. It's bigger than the Macy's Parade on Thanksgiving Day. It is a huge festival that's taking place. And so I hope you visualize the scene. You can almost see the ticker tape parade of victory as they're going through Jerusalem at this time. Verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, you can imagine here as the, as the ark now makes the corner or makes the turn around one of the streets near one of the homes here, going to be making its way around Jerusalem here. Uzzah reaches out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of the covenant. That really ruins a party. And you imagine all the fanfare and all the celebration and the armies and the chariots and everything going on, and suddenly there's Uzzah dead on the ground. I just have to imagine everything just stopped. Oh, man. Just from party to silence, from celebration and music and singing and laughter and joy to everybody going, what just happened? How, how could this be? And notice even David's response to all of this. In verse 8. And David was angry. Because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he named the place outburst against Uzzah as it is today. And David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And so he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. You can just imagine in the midst of this great scene of triumph... Uzzah is struck dead. David says, what was that? What was the deal with that? He's angry. He's upset. He's outraged. How could God kill Uzzah in the middle of all this? What did Uzzah do that was so bad? And he's so upset he won't even bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem itself, into the city of David. He says, get it out of here. Puts it in somebody else's house. Some Gittite. <laughs> and lets it rest there for three months. It's an interesting scene that, that sets before us, and I think it's appropriate for us to consider, well, what happened here? Why does everything turn south uh, so quickly in our story? Why does this go, go badly? It's important for us to realize that the law of Moses had certain procedures that were set out for what was supposed to take place with the Ark of the Covenant. There were certain procedures that God demanded concerning the handling uh, of the Ark of the Covenant, and you weren't allowed to just carry the Ark however you wanted to. The Ark of the Covenant, most importantly, the law was given that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, and the Ark of the Covenant was not to be touched by any means, and that carefully poles were placed through the rings that were on the Ark of the Covenant. And those poles went through, and so by those poles, the Ark of the Covenant could be lifted up, and they were to be lifted up onto the shoulders, and the Ark of the Covenant thus carried. If you remember in our scene, how do we have the Ark of the Covenant? It's on a cart, and the oxen are bringing it in, and that's not what God wanted. Furthermore, the sons of Kohath were the ones who were to carry the Ark. God was even very specific as to who was to be the ones who put the poles into the Ark of the Covenant, who was to then carry that ark. Only the sons of Kohath were to deal with these important items. And so they were to carry them uh, and handle, handle the ark. 
And I think what's interesting of what you see here as we we open up our story as to this Ark of the Covenant scene and Uzzah is being killed is that you don't have anybody in the scene asking or trying to figure out what God wants to have done when we bring in the Ark of the Covenant. No, it's just, hey, we're worshiping God. We're going to do whatever we want to do. It's a, it's a day of joy. We, we've conquered Jerusalem. It's now the city of David. And let's roll out the soldiers. Let's have a big festival. And, and rather than figure out what God wants done with the Ark of the Covenant, they just rush out, get the Ark of the Covenant, slap that thing on a new cart. I mean, it wasn't like they put it on an old cart. I mean, that was a brand spanking new cart. That was, it had to be pretty. You know, we got the nice new cart. We buy a cart for the Ark of the Covenant. We'll put the Ark on that. We'll get some very expensive oxen. We'll tie the oxen to our brand new cart. This will be beautiful. We'll just have them going through the streets. What a sight it will be to have the Ark of the Covenant laid with gold, cherubim on top, and we'll set it on the brand new cart, and the cart will roll through the streets, and imagine how nice that's all going to be. Somebody died for it. Because that's not what God wanted. And it's important to recognize when we talk about worshiping God, it's not about what we want to do. And that's what David does wrong in this scene, is that he takes the way of convenience. Is that he chooses to do what he thinks is going to be best. Let's not worry about what God wants. Let's not consult the law and say, okay, now how does God want the Ark of the Covenant handled? We're worshiping God, and so because we're worshiping God, that means it's an umbrella to do whatever we want to do. And that's the thinking that David has going on here. Is Well, as long as we call it worship... We can just act however we want to act, use whatever procedures that we want, and we'll disregard what God has said. And I want you to see that that caused this death to take place. And I feel awfully bad for us, because if you know the ark wasn't on the cart in the first place, this whole thing could have been avoided. And if you notice, oh poor Uzzah, he doesn't touch the ark out of outright rebellion. The oxen stumbles. That had to be such an interesting scene. Here you have Ohio's brother walking in front of, uh, in front of the, the, the oxen. You can imagine the picture. Here's the oxen going along behind. Here's the ark. And you can just kind of see Uzzah walking next, next to it. Because this is a very important treasure. And you're walking next by and you just see the oxen. And there it goes. Just And you just go. And he's dead. Man. And that's why you see David's reaction. David's reaction is... Well, you guys know not to touch that thing. <laughs> he doesn't say that I can go, oh, Huzzah, my goodness, you know better than that. You don't have that kind of response. It's not the response of what Aaron did when his two sons get barbecued for offering profane fire, where Aaron goes, well, God must be glorified. My sons were dumb. They shouldn't have done that. That's basically what Aaron does with his sons there. You don't have David going, well, Huzzah, boy, we told you not to... He's outraged by this. And I think that's interesting because that's often the way we respond when we talk about worship is outrage and we can't worship God the way we want to. How could God possibly kill Uzzah? What was wrong with what he did? What was wrong with what we were doing? We were trying to worship you, God. Look at what we had done here. Move, car, oxen, come on. How can you kill Uzzah? Because we want to worship God the way we want to worship God. We want to do things the way we want to do it. We want to take the way of convenience. We'll call it worship. We'll do it however we like it. That'll be good enough. And how dare anybody tell us to do it some other way? Because we're going to worship God however we feel like. 
And I think it's important as we read the scene to recognize that God demanded it to be done his way. It wasn't worshiping God if it wasn't done his way. If his procedures were not followed, it was unacceptable. And Uzzah, you weren't supposed to be there. And fellas, it wasn't supposed to be on a cart. And guys, you should have had the sons of Kohath carrying that thing. But no, you decided to do things the way you thought would be acceptable. And because of that, this day of celebration has turned into a day of loss. I think it's important for us to consider that there are a number of things that God tells us to do that we have to recognize we have to do it His way. And one thing that I think is important to talk about is baptism. Because we are in a world today that tells us, you know, baptism is optional, it's a good idea, it's important. You will get, (laughs) my favorite line is, it's necessary, but you don't have to do it. I I still try to figure out how something's necessary, but you don't have to do it. These things do not coexist. (laughs) Either it's not necessary or it is. And yet they'll say it's really, really important and necessary, but you don't have to do it. Listen to what God said. God said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ that your sins may be forgiven. How are your sins forgiven? Baptism is part of that requirement, along with many other things like repentance and confession. And turning away from our sins, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, living our lives in service to Him. All of these things are required to have our sins forgiven. And we'll have some who say, well, baptism, uh, you know, you can sprinkle, we can, we, can, we, can use all sorts of, we can use all sorts of forms. It doesn't matter how we do it. I've always found that fascinating because Acts chapter 8 and verse 38, you have Philip and the eunuch both going down into the water. Why in the world did these two guys have to go into the water? You know, now on a journey, and you're going back to Ethiopia, and you're coming from Israel, do you suppose... That, Paul could tell us because he's been about been, been over there. Do you suppose they probably had a canteen on hand? You think it's kind of hot over there? They probably had some water on the chariot. This really important royal official. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch is. He's a high up personnel within the government of, of, of this of Ethiopia. Do you think there was probably some water in there? Oh yeah. Why not just break that stuff out? Because that's not what baptism is. Why did Philip have to go all the way in there? The poor guy's going to be wet the rest of the day. That's the way I am usually. They're going to dry out and all that. Because that's what baptism is. And we can go and try to come up with all the goes arounds of, well, you know, sprinkling's fine. If you were sprinkled, you were not baptized. And we can do all of our little hymn haws and all that. We can do like David and say, oh, well, I'm upset about that, you know, and, and get angry. But God gave procedures. God wanted things to be done a certain way. Romans chapter 6 tells us a reason why. We're buried with Him in baptism. Sprinkling does not bury anything. Slowly. It's supposed to be a burial, a death. That's what's being pictured. That's why you're immersed in water. That's why God commanded that picture for us. And so we see them both going down into the water. I think it's also important to consider that the Scriptures repeatedly tell us that it was men and women who were baptized, never children baptized. <clears throat> Babies not baptized, children not baptized. And that should be kind of obvious to us because 
The point behind this is to be able to make a statement before God that we are submitting ourselves to Him, that we are sorry for our sins, that we are declaring to God that we're going to serve Him and we're going to worship Him and we are going to honor Him. And so we are sorry for our sins and we are trying to get God to take those things away and that's why we are doing this act. And babies can't confess sins or repent of their sins. And quite honestly, children can't even comprehend really what sin is about. And we can get our kids at a young age to, to parrot back to us that, you know, baptism is for the remission of sins and, you know, sin is bad. And we can, we can get... But you want somebody who understands what it means. That you have violated the laws of God. And because of that, you stand condemned. And it's not about just being able to, to shoot back some words of, oh yeah, I know I need to be baptized. No, no, no. You understand without the mercy of Jesus Christ, you're going to die in your sins. You say, no, yeah, I know there's no age that the Bible tells us when to be baptized, but one of the questions I like to ask is, if you're not baptized, do you feel like you're going to hell? Because that's one way you know if your sin is piercing your heart. As you sit there and go, I'm scared if I don't do something. Now I have a gravity of sin. Now I have a realization of I'm in trouble. I no longer feel the innocence of childhood. I recognize I have wrongdoings in my life. And I stand before God condemned. And so we have throughout the scriptures, men and women, because we need people who understand, not babies who are just being put through the motions by their parents. It's about doing things God's way. And if we haven't been baptized for the forgiveness of sins, that is, at that moment, your sins were taken away. You weren't baptized properly. If you were sprinkled, you didn't do it the right way. If you were baptized as a child, that wasn't the right way. And that's what we see going on here. David didn't do things the right way. We can say, well, the end result's all the same, right? The Ark of the Covenant's in Jerusalem. No, you do it God's way. And we can be like David and we can get really upset about all that and say, well, you know, that's not the way I want it to be, but it's about worshiping God above all else. How about singing? God do things God's way as well. Uh, nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded within the New Testament, within the law of Christ, uh, to do anything else but sing. Uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. You know, I, I'm all for rock and roll. You know, I, I, just, I, I have no qualms against guitars and all that stuff. I'm not opposed to mechanical things. I don't think that's the reason why I, I don't like it. But God said to sing. Therefore, I'm going to sing. Well, I, I, I want to worship God with my guitar. I had, a, had somebody who I was studying with a little while back, and we were kind of talking about this, and I feel like I worship God with my guitar. Okay. I said, that, you know, that's, that's fine. Go ahead. But we're commanded to sing. So what are we going to do? Are we going to be like David and slap the thing on the, on the, on the cart and do what we want to do? Or are we going to do what God has asked us to do? And it's important for us to recognize that we need to do things the way God says. God's money, the same way. We can come back with all sorts of good things and good ideas of all the things that we want to do with God's money. And we can go, oh, this is really exciting. Why don't we go build this, do that? You know, hospitals, orphans, homes, we'll, just, we'll, we'll save all the poor of Palm Beach County. That's not what God commanded. 
He commanded that to be done by individuals. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is our responsibility as individuals, that the Lord's money was to be reserved only for evangelism of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help the needy saints. That's all that, that's pictured. So we can either do what God says, or we can pursue the way of convenience and try to worship God the way we want. Now here's one that you, people throw stones at. How about divorce and remarriage? Are we going to do things God's way? Pastors that not, not a lot of people like, but I say to you that, who, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Very interesting. The scriptures are very clear. Basically, you get one spouse for life. That's, that's pretty much the picture that's given, without, with one exception. If your spouse cheats on you, sexual morality, that is the only grounds for divorce that's given here. Otherwise, you are in a state of adultery. And we can come up with a lot of reasons why we think we need to get out of that. You know, when we don't get along, we don't see eye to eye, we don't have the same foundation, you know, we don't like each other anymore, she burnt the toast, she just dragged me up the wall. We got all sorts of things that bug us about it. But God said, here's the way it's supposed to be. God said is that you're not supposed to divorce except for sexual morality. And if you do, that's adultery. And to make matters worse, if you go get married again, you've committed adultery yet again. Or we can get upset about that. That turns a lot of people away. But this is what God said. And we need to do things the way God has described. What's interesting to me also in this story after these, these first 11 verses of chapter 6 is you have this great emphasis on procedure. You need to do things the way God has commanded. You better do it the way he says. Otherwise, look at the end result. Here's Uzzah with a very good heart. His pure intention is simply to keep the beloved Ark of the Covenant from falling down to the ground, which contains the holy, the holy relics that, that were to be remembered from Aaron's rod and the pot of manna and the, and the two, two tablets of stone. And here it's about to fall to the ground. And all Uzzah does with great heart is to try to stop it. And God kills him for that. With even great motive and intention, you do things the way God commands. Otherwise, there'll be judgment. But look at the rest of the scene. In verse 12, it was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Isn't that a, a neat little uh, twist that God does? As David's outraged about what has happened here, he, he sends the ark of the covenant off into somebody's home. And you know what happens for those three months? That family that has the ark of the covenant there, they're not cursed. No plagues, no problems. They're blessed for those three months. And here you have the report swirling around Jerusalem. And you get it to David. You know what's happened since the Ark of the Covenant has been there? Boy, things have been going great for that family. <laughs> it's good to see God just kind of smiling. Like, uh, if you just do it, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. You need to do things right. <laughs> just do things right. I'll bless you. Just do things the way that I ask. I'll take care of you and bless you. Verse, the rest of verse 12, So David went up and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. I want you to see, we're going to try again. We're going to do it all over again. We get the, get the rejoice. Okay, strike up the band again. We're going to bring in the ark of the company. You can imagine, get the procession going. We're getting everything all set up. We get the soldiers. We get everybody going again. The ticker tape parade goes once more. Notice verse 13. And when those carrying, hey, we've, we've, we've had a breakthrough. We've got people carrying the Ark of the Covenant this time. All right. Now, now we've decided to consult the law of God and do things the way that he says. But notice what it says. When those that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant advanced six steps, he sacrificed an, an ox and the fattened calf. <laughs> you get what that looked like? 
In the midst of all this, for, you know, all right, here's the great rejoicing. You can imagine, all right, they get the Ark of the Covenant. I can just imagine everybody just stopped. And they watched. One, two, three, four, five, six. And everyone went. Okay. We all were sacrificed before God. It's all right. It's all right. You know, after what had just happened before, three months ago, fresh in their minds, it's okay. This is the procedure that God wants. Nobody's going to get killed today. Offer a sacrifice before God. Thank you, Lord. We're doing things the way you asked, and everything is going okay. And so they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So notice verse 14. And David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of a ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. Notice what you have going on. Everybody's excited. All of Israel is, is worshiping and jumping. You can see David twirling around and all of Israel is there and they're shouting with ram's horns. And up in the palace... What's she doing up there? David's wife, Michael, kind of pulls back the curtain and is looking down upon the festivities and is watching all this go on. And so she despised David for this. What? What's the problem? Notice verse 17. The excitement continues. They bring in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent. David had set up for it, and David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the, in the Lord's presence. And so the, the celebration is going on all day. And in verse 18, when David finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed a, a loaf of bread, a date cake, a raisin cake to, to each one of the whole multitude of the people of Israel, both men and women. And then all the people left. Each one went to his own. What a, what a great day of celebration that has taken place. In verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. And notice what she says. My, how the king of Israel honored himself today. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls as subjects like a vulgar, vulgar person would shamelessly expose himself. Oh. What a nice response. As, as Michael sits in the upper room and, and peers, peers down upon all these, and David finally returns home after this great celebration, and, and you get Michael, my, my, how the, the great King David has shamelessly danced out there in his linen ephod. Ah, very nice. And notice, I love David's response. You know, David doesn't go, oh, honey, I'm sorry, you know, you're right. I should have been more kingly out there. Notice what David says, verse 21. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about. And Saul's daughter Michael had no child on the day of her death. See which way God sided on that one? <laughs> As Michael has no children, a great condemnation upon women in that day. And here David says, do you think that's bad? I will humble myself even more before God. I will humiliate myself even more before God. I will be honored by others. Why is Michael in her room when all of the rest of Israel is worshiping and celebrating and dancing and twirling as the Ark of the Covenant has come in and victoriously they stand before God as the people of Israel. By her own answer, it sounds like she's just outright pretentious. This is just not 
what's proper for the queen to act like. <laughs> this is just not the way it's supposed to be. David should be standing out there in his royal robes and have this, this whole entourage around him and, and he needs to have pomp and circumstance and all that going on before him and he should, should just have all this royal honor before him. How dare David, the king of Israel, strip down to common wear and gird himself with just a simple linen ephod when he should be wearing the purple and be kingly with scepter. And how dare he look like such a poor commoner dancing amongst those petty peasants of Israel. That's really what she's saying. How dare you not be such a king? <laughs> Why not put on airs? Why not be who you are? As David doesn't care about any of that. And that's what David's response is. Does David respond of, yeah, I should look more kingly? No, his response is, I'm before the God. I have no pretense before God. I'm nothing before God. Who am I before God? A king? No, I'm nothing. I'm dancing before God. So be quiet, basically. Who do you think you are to say something as ridiculous as that? And I think what is important that we learn from this is that, that worship is supposed to be full of emotion. It's supposed to be full of heart. And that's what you see going on here. Is that there was that demand that it was unacceptable for Michael to, to sit up in her room and just kind of observe the festivities and go, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. Wonderful. Give me a break. This is an exciting moment. God had given this land and this city to David. Here is the fulfillment of promises that had been given hundreds of years in advance. Thousand years in advance. Now that fulfillment has come. The enemies have been subjugated under David's feet. We've been reading about all David had gone through. And now David's throne has finally been established in Israel. And all that Michael has to say is to maybe pull back a blind and look down upon all that. Aren't you excited, Michael? Don't you want to go worship God with the rest of the people? Don't you want to show some rejoicing? Nope. But David will dance. David will rejoice. David will celebrate with all of Israel. What you see, if I could t sum up one word, if I can put Michael in pretentious, I'd like to put David and Israel as enthusiastic. They were excited about what they were doing. This is not manipulation here. They were just excited. This is an exciting time. And I think that's an important thing that we see going on with what's taking place at this moment is that there is an excitement that needs to be brought about as we worship God. And our worship is supposed to be enthusiastic. It's supposed to be full of heart. It's supposed to pluck the very strings of the heart. And we, we spend time talking about that's what that text means when it says to pluck the instrument. What's the instrument? It's the instrument of the heart as we sing these songs of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we're today we're plucking the heart. Are we plucking the heart? Are we enthusiastic? Are we reaching into the emotions that reach in there? Are we involving ourselves that way? Or are we Michael in the upper room? Just kind of going through the motions. While we see in the first half of chapter 6, worship is supposed to be carried out the way God commands. And you do it the way He says. And you do it exactly as He has given the procedures. You need to do it with enthusiasm. 
You need to care about it. It needs to affect the heart. It needs to strike us and strike the very chords. And so we need to be excited about what we are doing. And there's nothing wrong with being caught up with the emotions of the Scriptures. As you read the trial scene of Christ, and we read about the suffering, we read about the beatings, we should not feel timid to cry about that. It's an awful, horrible scene that should reach into our hearts and should not be read with such great academic, you know, and he died. You know, we should be upset about that. That should reach into our heart. And we should be excited when we read about, like we read about this morning at the Lord's Supper. What an exciting thing to think about, that we are children of God, that we are now one with Him, that we are no longer alienated. That should reach into our heart to be exciting to us. And we should be so happy to read those kinds of things. When we take of the Lord's Supper, that should be such a, a, a dual emotion of, look what it costs, but look what it gives me. And what a great memorial that Christ set up for us. And it's easy for a lot of the things that we do to become habitual and not strike at the heart. Our singing needs to be the same way, enthusiastic. It needs to pluck the strings of our heart. It doesn't matter how good or how bad our song leaders can or cannot be. We should be singing with enthusiasm. And it doesn't matter how bad our allergies are killing me or killing us and how screeching our voice might be because of it that day or dried out. We should be wanting to sing with enthusiasm. Friends, God does not care what you sound like. He doesn't care. He just wants us to sing plucking the strings of the heart. And He wants that enthusiasm. He wants that kind of zeal behind our singing. And we might be just outright wretched singers. It might only be reserved for the shower and that's it. But God wants us to sing. And so we need to sing with that enthusiasm, read the Word of God with enthusiasm. Our prayers should be heartfelt as well. Our prayers should come from the heart, should be what's on our mind, what's on our heart. It should be touching in that very way and not just simply rote memorization. And so I hope we will think about enthusiasm, that that our hearts are to be involved in every aspect of our worship as we sing, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we pray, as we study, all of these things demand the heart. And God wants the heart. And so let us not overemphasize one over the other. It's not about, oh, let's just have all the emotion and not care about what God has said. David and Uzzah and all of them found out that's wrong. They were quite enthusiastic as God struck Uzzah dead. That's no good. By the same token, it's not about just the procedure as Michael stood up there and all of her believed pretentiousness. She should have been down there worshiping God enthusiastically, just as David was. And let us bring both in together. And so that's really the two things that I want us to see from today's lesson from Second Samuel 6. And it's always interesting to me how the Scriptures often will place these two concepts together. Here it is again. Leviticus 10 does the same thing. Worship and serve God according to God's instructions. Baptism is about doing it God's way. Singing is about doing it God's way. How we use the Lord's money is about doing that God's way. Divorce and remarriage, got to do that God's way. All the laws of God, everything that we find in the Scriptures, I've just picked out a couple. 
we have to do things the way God says. Otherwise, we're not going to stand safe before God. We can come up with a lot of rationale, a lot of reasons, a lot of excuses why we do one thing or another. I, I, I fully believe that David was pure in heart in thinking about getting the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. You know, that, 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 that makes perfect sense. You know, let's get the newest, best thing. Get the oxen, get the new cart, man. Well, buy the very best. This was not some cheap secondhand kind of clunky cart going around here. This is not what God wanted. God wanted things done in a specific way. And we can come up with all sorts of great ideas of the things that we think we should be doing with the Lord's money. And wouldn't it be great if we did this? And if we purchased that, we could have this and do these things. But if God didn't command it, then that's not what he wants. And we can come up with great phrases of, you know, I don't really need to be baptized, but that's not what God commanded. We might want to have mechanical instruments, throw those in here. Wouldn't that be great? We can really rock this place out, throw up the Super Bowl, do things like that. It's not what God commanded. We must do things God's way. It is one of the critical lessons found repeated throughout the Old Testament. When when Paul told us that the things of the Old Testament are written for our learning, I cannot help but think one of the greatest lessons that was supposed to be learned from the Old Testament is that if you don't do things God's way, look what happens. Israel got carried off into captivity. Uzzah died. Nadab and Abihu died. You have all sorts of incidents like this over and again. Do things God's way. And when you do things God's way, do it with enthusiasm. Do it with your heart. Invoke the emotions. That doesn't mean manipulate. I don't think that's, that's all acceptable. We're not going to sit here and force ourselves to cry about things. We're going to sit here and pinch ourselves until we look like we're emotional. It's not about each other. It's just about worshiping God with the heart. And that's all David's trying to explain to Michael. I'm telling Michael, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what all else Israel thinks. I'm worshiping God. And that's what matters most. And I hope we have that same attitude. As I don't care if you see me crying about reading the scripture. I'm worshiping God, and I'm invoking the, the heartstrings. I don't care if you see me enthusiastic about my worship. That's the way I feel, as I am invoking my emotions in my heart as I worship God. And so let us combine both. Let us do things God's way, and let's also do it with the heart. Friends, we're going to invite you to accept the gospel of grace this very, very morning. We pray that you will do things God's way, that you will consider the things that you've done in your life. Have you done everything that God has asked you to do to receive grace in your life? Have you believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Have you made a commitment before God to turn away from sin? You're no longer going to live for self, but you will serve God with all of your heart and confess that he is the Lord of your life, that he is the Lord of this world, and that you will be immersed in water to have your sins taken away. These are the steps that God has said that are required. And by doing these things, we reveal our faith in Jesus Christ, and he has promised to take away our sins. Won't you please do that this very morning while we stand and while we sing?